And don't believe in anything that can't be told in colored pictures. Such was the final advice of G.K. Chesterton that he once gave to an intelligent young child. It is marvelously simple, yet very plainly profound. Don't miss the wisdom behind those words. Ideas that cannot be illustrated with mental images are nothing more than unreal abstractions, or as one man has described, mere mental muddles. Too often, the spiritual truths that we read in the Bible become to us mere mental muddles. Simply because we have not, we have this abstract picture of them in our minds instead of a concrete picture of them in our lives. The Word of God is more than just wordy principles and neatly packaged outlines. It is living. It is active. And it should be visible. Amen? I believe that's exactly why Jesus taught the truth with stories. When you hear the phrase, the fruit of the Spirit, I want to ask you, do you get a picture in your mind of what that means? Or do you simply proceed to run through a mental checklist? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 is more than just a mere list of Christian virtues. It is a swatch of colorful brush strokes which paint a picture of Christ to the world in and through the life of every single believer. Consider the following vignette, which was related by Francis Chan in his book, Forgotten God. It's about a couple by the name of Domingo and Irene Garcia. He's a mechanic, she's a hairdresser. They have been foster parents to 32 children and have adopted 16. Domingo and Irene are in their, get it, they're not in their 30s. They're in their late 50s. They're in their late 50s and currently have 11 children living with them and they tell me they would take more if they could. Anyone who has children knows they could be doing this only by the Spirit's power. Amen? Imagine the amount of, of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control it would take to pull this kind of thing off. I can tell you right now, I don't have it. <laughs> you just barely handle one grandchild when she's around for the weekend. Domingo and Irene take the command in James 1.27, caring for orphans, more seriously than most Americans that we know. While other people their age are figuring out how to live most comfortably, they can't stop thinking of the 500,000 kids in America who need parents. And while they see these kids as a huge blessing, they are also very open about the hardships they face daily. Perseverance has been key, especially years ago when one of their adopted sons hung himself in their closet. While their days are filled with joy, there have also been many times when they persevered by sheer obedience. 
God has provided for them over and over and over again. One time they needed to build an addition onto their house so that they could take in more children. They didn't have the money, so Irene prayed fervently. When she looked up from praying, the first thing that she saw was a sign for a contractor. She immediately asked God, is he the answer to my prayer? Days later, one of the leaders in their church heard about their need and offered to build the addition for free. Guess what? It was the same contractor whose name Irene had seen on the sign. One of the wonderful blessings they have enjoyed is watching their biological children follow in their footsteps. One of their sons has two biological and two adopted kids. Another son has three biological and three adopted kids. They lived such extraordinary lives that CBS ran a news story on them. Even the secular world takes notice of the unusual and supernatural love that these two have shown to those in need. Now, for those of you who may think that Domingo and Irene have always been as gracious as they are today, let me share some insight from their past. Irene has shared publicly about the early days in their marriage and the hatred she felt toward her husband, Domingo. He was abusive, and she prayed regularly that he would die. Imagine that, praying that prayer. She even daydreamed about him driving off a cliff because of the pain that he had inflicted on her. Now she calls him the godliest man she has ever known. For anyone who thinks their own life or marriage is hopeless, remember Domingo and Irene. God loves to take people in the worst of their situations and transform them by the Holy Spirit. Turn to Galatians chapter 5 in your Bibles, if you would. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Paul writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, for a garden to produce bountiful fruit, it usually has to be well fertilized, right? And as many first-time gardeners find out, fertilizer is no fun. It's unpleasant to work with and undesirable to wade through. But it also provides rich soil by which healthy growth is cultivated. In the same way, the spiritual fruit of Christ-likeness grows and thrives and becomes visible in some, in some of the most undesirable and uncomfortable circumstances imaginable. For instance, patience only becomes visible in our lives when we are given the opportunity to show it. You don't store it up in reserve. Self-control needs a context in which to show itself, right? Gentleness, goodness, and faithfulness do not operate in isolation. Difficult situations in our lives can either turn us bitter or they can make us better. Whichever attitude that we choose to adopt is rooted in how we respond to the Spirit in those times. 
if in those times we yield to the Spirit's control, we will discover that He will produce fruit in our lives. And fruit is what Jesus desires for each of us, and it actually identifies us and the fact that we follow Him. By this my Father is glorified, said Jesus, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. John 15, 8. The fruit of the Spirit is cultivated then in the garden of obedience. Spiritual fruit is the expectation of God's Son. John 15, 16 says, You didn't choose me, remember. I chose you and put you in the world to bear fruit, fruit that won't spoil. As fruit bearers, whatever you ask the Father in relation to me, he gives to you. Every true believer in Christ will bear fruit. Every true believer has within him or her the indwelling spirit and therefore will bear fruit in some capacity. Now the Bible talks a great deal about the fruit that we as Christians bear. Do a little study sometime in your devotions on what kind of fruit we bear as Christians. In the Gospels, we read about the fruits in keeping with repentance. You know what that is? Put it more understandably, this is the concrete and practical evidences of a changed relationship with God. You're not the same as you used to be. Things change. Other types of fruit spoken of in the New Testament include our praises that we give to God, the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. Hebrews 13, 15. People that we've led to Christ or had a portion in leading to Christ are considered fruit in the New Testament. Financial support and assistance that we provide to fellow believers, people going on the mission field, people in need, orphans, widows, that's considered as fruit. Godly works are considered to be fruit produced by the Spirit through the believer. Growing in Christ, bringing glory to God, participating in gathering of souls, giving to others, and good works are the outward active results of a life that has an inward attitude of faith. The fruit of the Spirit that Paul is talking about here in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 however, are the character traits that make up and display that attitude of faith. Without these spiritual, relational, and personal virtues produced within us by the Holy Spirit, the outward aspects of spiritual fruit could never, ever be accomplished. So before we actually take a look at the fruit itself, I want us to remember the criteria required for enjoying a productive life in the Spirit and seeing His fruit multiplied in our lives. And it's twofold. And it's absolutely crucial because the fruit of the Spirit is cultivated in the garden of obedience. So the first criteria is this. Spiritual fruit requires a right relationship to Christ. That's the number one requirement. We must abide or live or make our lives or surround our lives or saturate our lives in Him. We cannot bear fruit apart from Christ. In John chapter 15... Verse 14. You want to turn there in your Bibles? John 15. I'm sorry, not verse 14, but verse 4. 
Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me you can do what? Zip. Nothing. So, pure and simple, as long as you attempt to manufacture this fruit of the Spirit... In your own strength, it won't be of the Spirit, it'll be of you. And it will be frustrating, and it will be fruitless. You can't do it yourself. Without the vine, the branch is useless. Christ has sent His Spirit to live in our hearts to keep us connected to Him. He is the power which supplies us with the necessary spiritual elements for spiritual fruit to grow. Therefore, we need the Spirit to produce the fruit. Even the Old Testament, God's people produce God's fruit only by God's power. Speaking to Israel, God says in Hosea 14, 8, It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. So spiritual fruit first requires a right relationship to Christ and it demands a right relationship to his word. We must not only abide ourselves in him, but we also must obey him. That's the other thing. In fact, the two are inextricably tied to one another. As one man has written, the secret of abiding is obedience. The secret of abiding in Christ is obedience to his word. The relationship is undeniable. The extent to which we bear fruit is directly related to the place the Word of God has in our lives. Apart from our making ourselves at home in Christ and His Word being at home in us, there will be no spiritual fruit. Jesus spoke clearly of these two principles as essential to the Spirit's ministry of producing fruit in us. In John 15, verses 7 and 8, He said, If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Then God's assumption, his expectation is that we exemplify the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is cultivated in the garden of what? Obedience. You'll never experience God's power in your life apart from abiding and obedience. Any person that knows the power of the Spirit when inevitably Exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. So it's not just the expectation of God's Son, but secondly, spiritual fruit is the experience then of us, God's people. Now Paul lists nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit which the Spirit produces in the life of every believer, no matter how small the evidence may be, no matter how hard it may be for us to see it and detect it in somebody's life, the fruit will happen. It will happen in every believer's life as every believer yields a part of him or herself to the Holy Spirit's control. It's God's Spirit's fingerprint on us. Notice also in Galatians chapter 5 the fact that the word fruit is singular. Notice that. It's not fruits of the Spirit, it's fruit of the Spirit. 
This is important to understand because it implies that these are not separate things. They're not separate fruits that are developed independent of one another. They are a united entity. Following me so far? Okay. It's one apple, folks, and it may be sliced, but it's unified rather than separate pieces of fruit. Every believer has each aspect in varying degrees. In other words, what I'm saying here and what Paul, I think, really is describing here is that the Spirit doesn't produce three of the nine in one person and maybe eight in another or possibly five in someone else. The fruit of the Spirit is not like the gifts of the Spirit in which they are all variously and individually distributed as they're needed throughout the body of Christ. All of the different aspects of the Spirit are to be found in us. That's what I'm saying. Another way to view the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, is as a beam of light as it's seen through a prism. In his book, The Fruit of the Spirit, Manfred George Gutsky sees the same comparison. He writes, all the colors of the rainbow are in every beam of sunlight. They're all there at any one time. They may not always come into vision, but they are all present. Ever seen light through a, a prism? It breaks it down, refracts it. In essence, the fruit of the Spirit is the light and life of Christ becoming visible in the conduct and character of every Christian. You and I are prisms. It's the evidence that God's molding us into his image. That he is being faithful to perfect that which he began in us the first day we came and gave our hearts to Christ. Now the question is, are people seeing that in us? That's the practical application. Are we letting them see it in us? I'm not so sure. Let me explain. A lot of people in here today, a lot of people in this room, balcony, out in the cafe area, watching on the screens. You see, most of us come to church on Sunday mornings and we put on the face. Don't we? It's like putting on makeup. We put on the face when we get around other Christians. It's a face that communicates the message that we are holier and more Christ-like than we actually are in reality. Am I right or am I right? And I'm right there with you. We're more holy, more Christ-like than we are in actuality, like when we're at work or when we're at home or when we're behind the wheel. <laughs> or anywhere outside of our Christian buddies. And we all do it, don't we? We do. We wear a lot of makeup at church. We want to hide the blemishes. It's understandable. The problem with that is, is that when the Lord does make a change in us, a major change, real changes to our inner being, no one can really see the progress because we're all hiding it under a veil of hypocrisy. Right? I wear too much makeup. And you probably do too. 
authenticity is one of the areas that we ought to want to grow in. John Ortberg, in his book, Everyone's Normal Till You Get to Know Them, The Apostle Paul has a wonderful line to a church in Corinth about how it is possible for people to live in community with unveiled faces. No makeup. Paul uses this line in retelling the story of Moses' meeting with God on Mount Sinai. Remember what happened to Moses when he was on Mount Sinai and he came down from the mountain? What was happening to his face? It was glowing, right? It was glowing. In our day, we talk about happy people having faces that beam. People always have one adjective to describe a bride. What is it? Radiant. Radiant. Moses' face was radiant. I would guess that his contemporaries were very impressed by this. Word spread. Moses has a shiny face. When they looked at him, people would say, wow, he's special. One morning, Moses woke up, looked in the mirror while shaving or something, and noticed that his face was not glowing quite so much anymore. He was losing his radiance the way that a mainer loses a tan in September. He knew that when people saw his face now, that they would be less impressed with him and he wouldn't be so special anymore. Paul writes that Moses, quote, put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away, unquote. New Testament scholars differ as to exactly what Paul's point is in all of this, but I wonder if part of what was going on is that Moses wanted the people to think he was more spiritually radiant than he actually was. So Moses wore a veil. Now, we don't know how long he wore it or when he finally decided to take it off. My guess is that it was when his wife said to him, Moses, take off that stupid veil. You're not fooling anybody. She might have added, personally, I'm glad your face isn't glowing anymore. I couldn't get any sleep at night. It was like going to bed with a giant firefly. (laughs) Take off the veil. I could hear a wife saying that. (laughs) Zipporah. What a relief it must have been for him to take off the veil. To let people see that he was just plain old Moses. Paul goes on to say that since we have this assurance of God's love, no matter what, we can do a very bold thing, you and I. We don't have to be pretending anymore that we're more radiant spiritually than we actually are. We can live with unveiled faces. No concealing, no masks, no hiding. Amen? 2 Corinthians 3, 16 and 18 says this, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, then the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, He gives freedom. And all of us have that, had that veil removed so that we can be mirrors that brightly reflect the glory of the Lord, and as the Spirit of the Lord works within us, 
we become more and more like him and reflect his glory even more. But see, it's not just self-disclosure that Paul's getting at here in this text. I mean, we just don't need disclosure as if people need to accept our rough edges. Hey, this is who I am. Take me as I am. No, no, no. That's not what Paul is getting at here. We need the forgiveness and the grace and the healing of Christ to get those rough edges smoothed out and the sin taken care of. Amen? We need healing. That's why Jesus went to the cross. It was there that God poured out the full measure of his grace so that we who look to him with unveiled faces and receive him with an unveiled heart are slowly but surely being changed into his image from glory to glory. And we begin to reflect Jesus' character. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. The fruit of the Spirit is simply the character traits of Christ spiritually, relationally, and personally worked out in our lives. Every one of them is repeated as a command to believers elsewhere in the New Testament. Every single one of them. Everyone is epitomized in the person of Jesus. And each one finds its source and its strength in the Holy Spirit himself. Now, although they're inseparably glued together, I've taken the liberty to break these nine aspects of the Spirit's fruit into three groups of three, each of them expressing a different focus. For instance, I see the first three as spiritual virtues, reflecting the depth of our intimacy with God. The second group are relational virtues, characteristic of our interaction with other people. And the final triad I see as personal virtues reflecting the core of our inner being, who we are. And so we're going to look at these things one slice at a time. Not all today. <laughs> Praise God. See, you don't, need, I don't, you don't need makeup for me to know what you're thinking there. The spiritual virtues of this fruit. We're only going to look at one slice of this apple today. Love. It's the first one. Love. Love. I remember when my youngest son, Matthew, first learned how to use the telephone. This was some years ago now. He used to call me here at the office when I'd be studying. My office used to, believe it or not, be right up there in that balcony. And he'd call me about a half dozen times a day. And he only had one message when he called. When I picked up the phone, he would quietly say, Daddy? Yes, Matthew. I love you. I love that reminder. I love that reminder. Nice thing about it is he's 20 years old and I still get it today. That's a great thing. And he's still giving me heart rocks. Some of you know that as a kid, he collected heart rocks every time he saw them, and he'd give them to my wife and I. We've got buckets full of them at the house we can't get rid of. 
Last year I was on the disc golf course and I happened to come upon a heart rock that was this big. I stuck it in my golf bag and carried it around that whole course the whole day so I could give it to him. Love is the supreme Christian virtue, said somebody. Many have said that this virtue, love, encompasses all of the other eight characteristics in the list. And in a sense, that's true. Listen to this. Joy is love's strength. Peace is love's security. Patience is love's endurance. Kindness is love's conduct. Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness is love's confidence. Gentleness is love's humility. And self-control is love's victory. It's all about love. Without love, all the other virtues become empty and without substance. I want you to look at, uh, if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The famous love text. I want to read it to you out of the New Living Translation. Paul writes, If I could speak in any language in heaven or on earth, but didn't love others, I would only be making meaningless noise, like a loud gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I knew all the mysteries of the future, and knew everything about everything, but didn't love others, what good would it be? I had the gift of faith so that I could speak to the mountain and make it move. Without love, I would be no good to anybody. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, it would be of no value whatsoever. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. Love is not irritable. And it keeps no record of when it has been wronged. It is never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Love will last forever. Agape love, that's the New Testament word for it, Greek word agape, you've heard that before, is the greatest expression of who God is what moves him to act and how we are to live as his followers. It's the term used to express God's unconditional love for us and man's obedient love to God and the love every Christ follower should have for other people. It's the supreme act of self-sacrifice. It is not Passive in nature, but active. It is personal, practical, and fulfills the whole law, as Paul just mentioned in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. It is commanded of every believer, and the definitive evidence that a person is a child of God, Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's not an option for the believer, yet it cannot ever be expressed apart from the Holy Spirit in the way that God intended. The Bible is so replete with verses which emphasize the importance of love as a spiritual virtue in our relationship to God and man that it seems wrong to deal with it so abruptly. And you know as well as I do that illustrations of love are innumerable. Often attempts to recapture as many facets 
of love as we can fail miserably, falling far short of all that love is. Yet, I'm going to ask you to indulge me for a few moments this morning as we wind this up and allow this true story to add one small detail to the picture of what Paul is speaking about here, about the fruit of the Spirit called love. It's written by a young lady by the name of Shannon, Shannon Etheridge. This is what she says. My junior year of high school was off to a great start. By the third day, I'd finally memorized my class schedule, my locker combination, and most of my pep squad routines. That morning, I slipped on my new jeans and sandals, grabbed my books, and kissed my mom goodbye. It was a 10-mile drive to school from our house in the country. As I got into my little brown car, I grabbed my seatbelt, thinking, I never remember to wear this thing, but I may as well put it on now that I'm thinking about it. As I came over a hill, I remembered I still needed to put lipstick on. So I adjusted my rearview mirror for a quick application. As my eyes returned to the road, I caught the glimpse of something moving, then felt my car suddenly jolt. I had hit something. And as I stopped the car, I ran back to see what I had hit. My sinking feeling was confirmed. I stood trembling over the body of a curly-headed woman lying face down in the grass next to a mangled bicycle. I looked down the road for some place to call for an ambulance. I noticed only two houses in sight. I ran to the closest one and pounded on the door, and when there was no response, I went back to my car, drove to the other house. An elderly man opened the door and quickly pointed me to his phone. I called 911, then I called home. By the time I got back to the scene, another car had stopped and a man was standing on the side of the road near the woman. My mother arrived within a couple of minutes and I tried to pull myself together as she ran toward me with her own tears of panic. As we waited for help, all I could think about was that woman that I had just hit. She was probably somebody's mother, someone's daughter, someone's wife. When a paramedic finally arrived and examined the woman, there was nothing he could do. And I left the scene not even knowing who she was. The next two hours were a blur. I remember collapsing on the living room sofa, sobbing, terrified of the facing the woman's family. I considered suicide more than once that afternoon. Later that day, I received a phone call from a man who said he was a neighbor to Marjorie, the woman I had hit. The caller told me that her husband Gary was out of town and that he and his pastor had driven to see him and to tell him his wife had been killed in a car accident. My heart sank. I was absolutely sure they wanted me dead too. The caller continued, Shannon, I want you to know that Gary's immediate response was, how is the girl? Was she hurt? I couldn't believe this man's first response was concern for me. How could he even think of me when I had just taken his wife from him? The caller said Gary wanted me to come to his home the night before the funeral. I wanted to decline, but I knew I couldn't. I was scared to death. As I entered the house, I looked down the entry corridor to see this big, burly, middle-aged man coming toward me, but not with animosity in his eyes, but with his arms open wide. 
Gary scooped me up in the warmest embrace, and the tears that I had been fighting back began to flow freely into his flannel shirt as his own tears flowed onto the top of my head. Couldn't stop repeating. I'm so sorry. So, so sorry. Once we regained our composure, Gary introduced me to his pastor and to two of his adult children. Then he took me by the hand over to a window seat and began to tell me things about Marjorie's life. He said, my wife was such a godly woman and we've served many years with Wycliffe Bible translators. There was no limit to how much Marjorie loved the Lord, Gary said. She had a very close, intimate walk with God, so much so that she'd actually been telling me for a while that she sensed the Lord would be calling her home soon. She lived every day as if it were her last on earth. And she never left this house on her morning ride without hugging and kissing me as if she might be saying goodbye for the last time. Gary had my full attention, she says, as he continued. Shannon, God was ready to take Marjorie home. Even though this caught us all by surprise, it comes as no surprise to him. You can't let this ruin your life, he said to her. Shannon, God wants to strengthen you through this. He wants to use you. As a matter of fact, I am passing Marjorie's legacy of being a godly woman onto you. I want you to love Jesus without limits just like Marjorie did. And I want you to let him use you for his glory, Shannon. Later, Gary was told that he could likely sue her parents by parents for more money than our insurance policy would cover, and yet he refused, saying, what would be the purpose of adding to that family's grief by making their lives more miserable? The district attorney wanted to try me for involuntary manslaughter, but Gary insisted that all the charges be dismissed without a trial. He had the perfect opportunity to make me pay for what I had done, and he chose mercy. For weeks after the wreck, Gary kept calling or dropping by where I worked just to see how I was doing. She says, Gary's merciful actions, along with his challenging words to me that night before Marjorie's funeral, would be my source of strength and comfort for years to come. God took this horrific event and turned it into something beautiful. As a result, I can say, along with the Apostle Paul, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And we have hope. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I gradually went, she said, from feeling blamed to feeling chosen. Chosen to carry Marjorie's legacy of being a godly woman who loves Jesus beyond measure. I wanted to be completely his, not just with my lips, but with my life. That's the kind of love that the Spirit produces in the heart of a Christ follower that's yielded to the Spirit. It gives, and sometimes it hurts. It doesn't play favorites. It extends itself. It stretches itself out to all, family, friends, strangers, and enemies. 
It's what Mark Buchanan refers to as unprovoked love. Free of conditions, without limits, fueled by something within itself rather than evoked by something outside of itself. It seeks those who never saw it coming, who never had it coming, who never sought it out. It shows up unannounced, unexpected, undeserved. It pursues us even when, when it's unrequited, pursues us still. It finds us lying in a ditch and at personal cost and personal risk without reward, lifts us up and mends our wounds and finds us shelter, all unprovoked. If it were possible for one passage of Scripture to capture the essence of love, I submit to you that it would be 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 10, which says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In Shannon's case, one act of unprovoked love redeemed an irreversible act of unprovoked violence. Love covered a multitude of sins. Now isn't that precisely what Jesus Christ and his love does? Isn't it? Isn't that what the communion table that we're about to share in signifies? Christ's love, unprovoked by us, unmerited by us, unwarranted by us, undeserved by us, unreservedly extended to us, but all too often left unapplied by us. The fruit of the Spirit is love unprovoked, yet poured out within, flowing out through us by the Holy Spirit who fills us. Dr. Sherwood Wirt once said this about the church. He said, I have learned that there's no point in talking about strong churches and weak churches, big churches and small churches, warm churches and cold churches. Such categories are unrealistic and beside the point, there is only a loving church and an unloving church. And loving churches are made up of loving people who have the Spirit of God flowing through them. Isn't that what we want to be? Let's pray as we get ready for communion. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I can't imagine, I can't imagine what strength it must have taken that man Gary to allow your spirit to flow through him to show love and mercy and compassion. 
He must have had such peace within him from your Holy Spirit to endure this tragedy with such patience. To be so kind, good, and gentle. Such self-control to be able to stifle the desire to have vengeance. Lord, may the Holy Spirit flow through each one of us, through me that way. And as I look at this table, I realize that because of what Christ did, we have the Spirit within us so that we can act like that. May we give ourselves to the Spirit this morning. For the sake of Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.